And Father, you are so gracious and so kind, and you take care of each day. You're, you're merciful, you're good, you're loving, and I thank you so much for your son Jesus. Thank you for what you have done through him in bringing the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that because of him we are the redeemed, we've been forgiven, and we can now uh, come boldly before your throne. And Father, I do just ask that uh, you would bless your word as it goes out, that you would use it as you intended, we know you will, that you would convict hearts, that you would correct those who are willing to be corrected, that we would be trained in righteousness that we would be adequate, equipped for every good work. Lord, bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in dangerous times, and you might be thinking I'm talking about the danger that confronts the world, but I'm actually talking about the danger that confronts the so-called church these days. You see, wicked men, hirelings, self-seeking individuals have crept in unnoticed. Uh, Those who have flipped God's word on its head, deceiving many into believing the purpose of the church is to uh, bring the world in rather than to equip believers to go into the world. And within this evil theology and paradigm, you have churches that have sin running rampant within And you have pastors that don't address sin within the churches. And so obviously, uh, churches led by wicked men leave sin unchecked, but yet we're sinners. And in good churches, there's sin. And so what do we do when uh, we sin? What are we to do in the context when there's sin in the body of Christ? Well, we've been studying Second Thessalonians, and we've come to a passage in which some brothers in the church uh, were not obeying the word concerning work. And within this, we have an exhortation from the Apostle Paul, and it, it seems like church discipline, but there's some differences. And so what I wanted to do was to go through the scriptures that have to do with how we deal with sin, and then we'll come to our passage in Second Thessalonians and look at how that figures in within an understanding of what God has desired for his body. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18? We're going to be looking today at verses 11 through 20. And we're taking a detour, as I've shared, through from Second Thessalonians this week, uh, looking at church discipline. Next week, Lord willing, looking at the work relationship from Colossians, and then the week after, getting back to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 to begin our close of that book. And be praying for what we will look at next. The Lord would lead us into what we would teach uh, next. Well, let me give you some context in the book of Matthew. You may have been here for that series or not, but let me share just briefly because this is a long passage, so I'm going to abbreviate it. But uh, King Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, a God who took on human flesh. He has come to his own, the Jews, who were sitting in darkness. They were in sin. And we have seen in this book that he manifests the light of his truth concerning their sinfulness and salvation only found in him. And it's in the context of repenting and believing the gospel, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now in Matthew, it's been about two and a half years since Jesus began ministering. And within that time, the Jewish people have hardened their hearts and closed their eyes concerning the truth of their sin and the person of Jesus Christ. And they are unrepentant. Yet they are still seeking to gain things from Christ. And as Jesus would say, they are an evil and adulterous generation. Uh, the religious leaders uh, hate Christ and they wanted to destroy him. And we see the Lord Jesus withdrawing from the multitudes and focusing on, at this point, training his disciples. And then we see the Lord Jesus moving towards the cross and his death and resurrection from the dead. And it's at this point the Lord continues to instruct his disciples here in Matthew chapter 18. And so we're going to see what we are to do concerning a sinning brother. And we're going to look at a passage that addresses what we call at times church discipline. But as we're going to see, it's how the Lord Jesus goes after his straying sheep. I'm going to read through verse 12. And I'm, you know, I'm not reading verse 11. I'll tell you why in a minute. We'll come back to that. But verse 12. What, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. So today we're going to see how we are to address a sinning believer through the Lord's words from Matthew chapter 18. And I need to remind you, we don't have the time to go through it, but Matthew 18 itself is one unit of thought, and we're coming in in the middle. So I'm going to briefly speak about the first few verses that were read earlier by Vadim. You see, the Lord uh, is addressing an issue with his disciples initially about greatness in the kingdom. And in verse 1, he reveals that true kingdom greatness and entrance comes through total dependence and faith in him as illustrated by a child's humility or a child's humility. Let's look back at verse 1 and we'll we'll just walk through these first 10 verses briefly. And I'm not going to get into the details. Uh, We don't have time for that. You can go listen to the CD that we did a while ago. It has those details. Verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now again, I'm not going to go through it all, but his disciples are, are addressing, they want to know who's the greatest. And so he illustrates with a small child, but the word literally means infant. Not like a little two or three year old, but an infant, one that is completely dependent. Completely dependent. That's what the word speaks of. And if you look at it, at this point, he illustrates this about who the greatest are. Verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. That's very important because it's not simply about children. As so many people take this passage and they talk about children in general. He's talking about little ones who believe in me. He's using an illustration. They're believers. And when he talks about stumbling, it's about stumbling a true believer. But he points out that entrance is through humility, being like a child. And so he springboards into the what you'll see, the incredible value of his children. And that's really important because that's what moves forward into our passage. Because if his sheep are so valuable, then he's going to go after them. And he gives the process and how he does so. Verse 5, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The way you treat believers actually reveals how you treat Christ. Okay? And so the Lord Jesus now reveals how valuable his sheep are. He says, but in contrast, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, it's a believer, and he's illustrating by believers are humble like children. They just believe what the Lord says. They trust in him. They abide in him. He says, when these little ones just believe in me to stumble... It is better that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is a powerful statement concerning the value of the Lord's sheep. Now, we have value because of him and our relationship with him. And so he says, it's better for you, it's shocking, that you be drowned in the depth of the sea and die, that's the implication, right, than the fate which will come upon those who stumble his true children those who believe in him and that fate is hell that fate is hell verse 7 woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks and boy i wish i had more time to explain what i did in the first message of this but you can get that woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks it's very emphatic for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come but woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come We're going to see in the context that those who don't obey the Lord are actually stumbling his children. If you don't obey the Lord and what he has called you to do in regards to the best interest in regarding those who are sinning, whatever it might be, you can be a stumbling block. It's very serious. He says here, but woe to whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand... Or, or, or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. He's using extreme language to make a point. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than having two hands and feet and be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes be cast into fiery hell. Don't mess with the faith of his True children, those who believe in him, they are very valuable. Now, false teachers mess with his sheep. Don't mess. Because if you mess with his sheep, you mess with him. Okay? 
And you would actually be better off dead than the fate that awaits you in fiery hell. So then the overall point he's saying is that for those he died, they're very valuable. And the way you relate to them reveals your heart towards him. Towards him. Now notice what he says here. They're so valuable, they have their own angels. He even adds that in. We don't see this anywhere else, but we have it here. This is where we get the theology of a, of a guardian angel. See to that you don't despise one of these little ones. He's not speaking of children. He's speaking of an illustration. Little ones who believe in him. They're believers. For I say to you there, that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. There's a lot more going on than just what we perceive in our own small spheres. We should keep our minds on the things above, not the things of earth. He's saying, hey, don't despise, don't disregard. They even have angels in heaven that are attending the Father, uh, continually beholding the face of my Father who is in heaven. The point is they're very, very valuable. And so how do we address a sinning brother or sister? First of all, we must recognize the incredible worth of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And the incredible damage one does and the consequences of stumbling. And if you are one who stumbles, maybe you don't know the Lord. One who stumbles, believers, by the way. So we move into this portion where now we see how Jesus goes after sheep. But first of all, we'll see that uh, Jesus goes after his precious sheep that stray. He goes after them personally. Personally. For the Son of Man, verse 11, came to save that which is lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go search for the one that's straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 100, more than the 99 which have not gone astray. Thus, here's the point, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. He's still, still speaking of little ones. And earlier he said, little ones who believe in me. They're believers. They're believers, as evidenced by their humility like a child. Okay, Little ones who believe in me. Now it's important to realize that Jesus himself goes after the, the, the straying sheep. Now I need to point out one textual issue which your Bibles are, are, and translators are, are faithful to point out. They'll point this out because there's a, there's a, a, a textual issue. Verse 11 does not exist in most of the ancient manuscripts there are a couple but it doesn't in most and it's almost certain that this was probably added by scribes later your bibles will rightfully note it and most of them will have it in italics to say hey this is not we're not totally sure so we don't build doctrine on that verse you'll see in your nasb it gives a note there and also the new king james has a note not in the nu manuscripts talks about that and you'll see why and it's important because here, he says here, uh, in verse 12, he talks about those who have gone astray. Uh, verse, end of verse 12, straying. And those, verse 13, who have not gone astray. The idea is straying sheep, not lost sheep. 
And so we can get mixed up and think he's talking about going after non-believers to save them. That's not what this passage is about. It's about going after the straying sheep, those little ones who believe in me. That's what he's talking about. These sheep are not lost per se. They are straying. They are wandering. And that's really important. That's why it's important to note that that verse is in italics. So with that in mind, we always interpret the clear, the unclear with the clear passages. We don't take the unclear and use that to interpret the clear. We don't do it that way. So we're going to use what we know is the word of God for sure with a clear portion and interpret it, the other portion with that. So then we're not going to place our emphasis on verse 11, but on verses 12 and 13 in light of this. And then interpret 11 by 12 and 13. So then Jesus values his sheep, these little ones that believe, so much so that he, like a shepherd, would go after the sheep. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gone astray, not lost, gone astray, he's talking about it. We, we tend to say lost again is, is not saved. That's the way we think of that word. This is gone astray. And does he not leave the 99 and go search for the one that is straying? And it turns out if he finds it, truly, I said he rejoices over it more than the 99 have not gone astray. See, good shepherds continually go after the straying sheep. They search for. It speaks of a continual, habitual seeking. And it's because they're valuable. And when he finds it, you can see what their reaction, how valuable they are. And I say he rejoices over it more than the 99 have not gone astray. It's an illustration Basic illustration that shepherds would understand. A lost sheep, he, he leaves the other ones and goes to it. He finds it, he rejoices. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And we see here ultimately that God cares about us and that his son goes after those who uh, he continually seeks them because they are very valuable. He gave his life for them. How much more would he go after them when they stray? So Jesus attaches the illustration of, of this to the reality of what he's teaching. Look at verse 14. The illustration of sheep straying, now he attaches it. Thus, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish, or, or the word means being ruined or destroyed. Thus, you could translate it in this way, literally. So he's saying... Uh, the manner the shepherd seeks after the sheep. Thus, thus, since shepherds seek after their sheep and rejoice when they find them, thus, it's not the Father's will in heaven that one of these little ones, believers, that's the context, little ones who believe in me, should be destroyed, utterly ruined. It's not God's will for any of his little believers to be ruined, as we'll see, by their own sin. By their own sin. That's not his will. That's not his desire. It's not his desire. So then if a shepherd goes after a string sheep, how much more would Jesus, who gave his life for those who believe in him, how would, much more would he go after them, continually seek them? That's the point. And if we don't have this point, we will not understand rightly what comes after this. We'll just see it as a step one, step two, step three type of thing. We won't see it as the Lord, through his body, seeking after the sinning sheep. Through an obedient body, by the way, that loves him more than they love uh, themselves. 
Now, we're going to look at this, about this portion where there's the process that God lays forth. We call it church discipline. But there are some exceptions to this in Scripture, that there's a slightly different way to address sin in the body. We've had people here who were hypocrites, and everything was in little boxes, and everything was a Matthew 18 thing, whatever it was, because it made them feel self-righteous when they pointed out people's sin. Well, the reality is, Scripture doesn't reveal it that way. We'll see in our passage here, it's to win a brother, and it's that they would uh, be one, but also there's other Scriptures that explain how we are to, in the context of our relationship with Jesus, deal with sin in the body of Christ. You don't just run to Matthew 18 every time there's sin around. There's specifics, and we'll look at that in a minute. But let me share some exceptions First of all, we don't apply Matthew 18 to the myriad of sins that do not characterize our lives. They're not continual habitual, they're not out of rebellion, and they are covered by love. Covered by love. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse, verse 8. Above all, Peter says, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? For love covers a multitude of of sins. He's quoting Proverbs. You see, he's speaking of the myriads of little sins we commit against one another unknowingly or whatever it might be, little offenses, misstatements. We're going to sin. But they don't characterize who we are in Christ. It's not our walk. It's not our walk. They're not continual habitual sins. They're mess-ups in the context of family. Love covers a multitude of sins. If you love, you let it go. What does Paul tell the Corinthians about love? He says, love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, don't forget that, does not take into an account a wrong suffering, doesn't keep a list of the things that people have done to them. Love does not keep a list so we are to keep fervent in our love for one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Don't get into the satanic trap of nitpicking every word and action of those around you because you will find stuff and you'll be miserable and you'll destroy and divide the church. Love covers a multitude of sins. And by the way, presumption is a terrible sin. Usually it's based on presumption, by the way. I don't think we realize how, how evil presumption is. It's extremely destructive. Through presumption comes nothing but strife. It's, 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 it's the epitome of pride to think you know something about something when you really don't. You are presuming about that. Proverbs chapter 10, and I mentioned this earlier, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 16:28 A perverse man spreads strife a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 13:10 Through presumption comes nothing but strife but those who receive counsel wisdom. What Jesus is talking about is straying sheep in continual habitual sin they're not responding as we'll see or they might respond you got they haven't been one yet. And that sin characterizes their life. You see it. That's what they're doing. 
But here, in these little things here and there, the misspoken words, the, the, the things we do, love covers a multitude of sins. We don't apply Matthew 18 to every little thing that happens in every situation. Well, notice um, there's another uh, ex- exception. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. You can turn there. Galatians 6, verse 1. Paul says, Brethren... Even if a man is caught in any trespass, the idea is being caught up or tripped up. That's the language. You who are spiritual, that's somebody who's relying on Christ, abiding in him, his spirit being manifest in his life as the word works in his heart. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you you too be tempted. You could get caught up in the same thing. Go to them. Restore them gently. They're tripped up. They got caught in a trespass. Go to them. We see that. That's very clear. It doesn't say go to them and, 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 and share the facts and bring two more. It doesn't say that here. It says just go to them. Restore them. Those who are tripped up by sin, they're not deliberately choosing to sin. They're not, they're not unrepentant. They're tripped up. They're caught up. They're caught up. So Matthew 18 is not speaking about what we see in Galatians 6. But someone in Galatians 6 can certainly move to the point where they become like those in Matthew 18. And the same thing with uh, what we saw with love covering multiple sins. It can move into rebellion, by the way, it, and it does at times. Now also, we don't apply Matthew 18 in the same exact manner for those who are uh, publicly sinning, as we'll see. They're not rebellious, but they're sinning publicly. There's some examples of that. We have in Galatians chapter 2, and it's a long passage. I don't think I'm going to read it all, but you can turn there. Galatians 2. Paul does not go through the process of pulling Peter over and saying, hey, I want to talk to you privately. He doesn't do that. He does not do that. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 11, and inspired by the Spirit. Notice he doesn't call him Peter, he calls him Cephas. A little little bit of a hint to where Peter's at at that point. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to coming, certain men of James of James he used to eat with the gentiles but when they came he began to withdraw himself and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision so he's got some little issue there sin issue but it's public everybody can see it that's the point it's not private it's public everyone is knowing and can see what peter is doing he says there and the rest of the jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew like the Gentiles, live like the Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. 
But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ a minister of sin? May it never be. And he goes on to continue his public rebuke. Peter was publicly rebuked for his public sin. No private, bring him aside. And it was a doctrinal sin. And it was hurting the body of Christ. Okay, that's one illustration. What about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? You could turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are times where we are to come around. There are those, as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians, those who are out of step, the term unruly. It's of, a, it's of an officer in, that is not in line with their command, commanding officer. There's, they're out of step. It could be rebellion, and it could move to rebellion, but it's, it's being out of step. Something's wrong in their walk. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we urge you, brethren, to the whole church, not to pull them aside carefully. Certainly that can happen privately also. But the statement just says, admonish the unruly. There's no process in this. It is just simply admonish the unruly. Those who are out of step, you go up to them, you, 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 you love them, and you say, look at brother, it's an admonishment. You are out of step with the Lord. You're disobeying God here. Here's what God says, and I'm warning you. An admonishment's a warning, nutheteo, to place into the mind. For your good, brother, I love you. Right? Admonish the unruly. We see this also in our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to get to it, but turn there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's very interesting. Because there's admonishment by everyone towards the ones who are obviously sinning. Their lives are obvious. The unruly, you can see them. It's not a private sin, whatever it might be. It's obvious to the body of Christ. Everyone can see they're out of line. Right? Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life. Out of the same word, out of step and not according to the tradition which you've received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. That's his example. And because we, and not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, this is the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy, we used to give you this order or command. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Okay? For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. There you go. Doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. The context is these guys were probably waiting for the return of Christ, and so they get up their jobs. And they're acting like busybodies. That's not a good thing. Busybody in church, not a good thing, by the way. And they were doing no work at all. They were loafing off the church, in a sense. Everyone could see it. It wasn't a private thing. Everyone could see it. Okay? And so what does he say to do? What does he say to do here? He says, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Here's the command. Obey the word of God. But if they don't obey the word of God, what are we to do? Is it take one, then two in every fact? Or is it, this is obvious. Obey the word of God. And if you don't obey it, hey, we're going to pull away from you for your good. 
It's, it's not the exact same thing as Matthew 18, but it's similar, right? So he says, we command you and the Lord to work in a quiet fashion, eat your own bread. But brethren, as for you, and you need to know this, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. It's a good thing when you're addressing sin for their good. Don't grow weary. It's tough. It's difficult. He says, in doing good, uh, he says here, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, here you go. Here's the command. Take special note. That's Johnny. He's not obeying the word of God. It's very obvious to everyone. He's been instructed by the word of God concerning this issue in his life, being undisciplined, not working. Take special note. And what does it say? Do not associate with him. Keep aloof. And there's a reason. You see, when people don't obey the word of God, the body of Christ should admonish And if the admonishments aren't responded to, then there is a separation. But it's in the context of love. Notice what he says. Do not associate with him so that he may be what? Put to shame. Put to shame. Now, shame implies that he might understand his sin and repent. You want people to be shamed for their sin in the right way that God is doing it, okay? Through the obedience to his word. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy. He's not an enemy but admonish him as a brother. So these are similar to Matthew 18, but there's different, right? It's public. Admonish him. He doesn't respond. Keep aloof that he'd be shamed. Back away, right? Now, there's one other area that is different than Matthew 18, and we'll talk about this, and it has to do with those who cause division, factions, and hindrances in the body of Christ. Divisions, factors, and the hindrance. And there's some similarities in all these, but some are not exactly the cookie cutter that people want to place on it through Matthew 18. Take, for instance, Romans chapter 16. Turn to Romans 16. It's really clear. There's no going to these people privately. There's no taking two other people. It's observing something and acting upon the word of God for your own protection. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. It's talking to the body of Christ in Rome. He says, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes, scopeo, scope out those who cause dissensions and hindrances. That's what you're looking for. They're causing hindrances. They're causing dissensions. They're causing it. And the way they're causing it is contrary to doctrine, to teaching. It's not in accordance with the word of God. Because, yes, sometimes the word of God does divide. But this is not according to that. This is in the context of those who are, as we'll see, uh, wicked. He says, the teaching you've learned and what? Turn away. He doesn't say go to them. He doesn't say uh, bring two more. He says spot them out and turn away. And there's a reason. They're very dangerous. Because if you went to them, then you're in the process to be able to be sucked in by them, by the way. This is God's wisdom here. Don't go to them. Don't follow Matthew 18 with bad guys in the church like this. Follow Romans chapter 16. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And look at this, by their smooth. And we've seen this here. We've seen it in in live with live people. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That's why you better be obedient. And you better spot it 
And you better turn away from it because you are vulnerable to their deception if you don't obey the word of God. And I saw many who didn't obey the word of God, which we told them to obey, and they got sucked right into it because they didn't obey God's word. But Paul is confident with the Romans. He says, For the report of your obedience is reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Don't get involved with them. Turn away from them and obey the Lord. And the God of peace will soon crush the power behind them, will soon crush Satan under your feet. So there's another example. That's not Matthew 18. You don't do Matthew 18 with those who are causing dissensions and hindrances. You turn away from them for your own good so you don't get sucked into their deceitful flattery and wickedness. They're not of Christ. There's another one that's sort of like Matthew 18, but it's not. Titus chapter 3. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Very clear commands. Titus is uh, being sh- shared to by Paul, is sharing Titus these instructions. And so it could, be, it could be said that this has to do with the leadership. That's certainly true. But I think there are applications with those uh, believers also. Paul tells Titus, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. First warning, second warning. It doesn't say go to him privately. Uh, bring two more after that. It's a first and a second warning. Two warnings, and after that, they don't respond. Factious. It's one who is a heretic. The word came from heretikos. And see, heretics would take the word of God and twist it and create a faction out of it. That's where that word came from. And so it came to un- mean, in a general sense, factions. People who created groups, factions. You see, and he says, knowing that such a man, and we've got to know this, like in Romans, we've got to know what's underneath. God tells us the heart. We can't see it, but we know from the behavior what God says. Knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. No Matthew 18 process, first and second warning, out. Reject him, right? And that's for your protection, because if you were to do the private thing, factious men would tempt you to be in their faction, You see, same thing with the deceiving speech. God is wiser than we are. He's all wise. When we lean on our own understanding and try to address things and fit passages in the wrong way, we get and suffer uh, the consequences of not obeying God's word. So those are some examples of of how uh, Matthew 18 doesn't directly apply. There's also a portion in terms of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Your elders are not to receive an accusation at all, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's a protection for the elder. One person just can't start saying stuff. They're not there to reject that. But if they continue in sin and it's proven, then they're to be rebuked in the presence of all. Okay? Okay, so with that in mind, what is the process for us in relationship to Matthew 18? What's the process here? Look at verse 15. And... Back in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go to him, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the first step. Now, verse 15 begins with two con- Greek conjunctions, en, if, and day, and, in a sense. And it can be translated, but if, or and if. And sadly, there are some versions that do not translate the and there. Uh, the new NIV doesn't, the New Living Translate, the new NLT doesn't, and the updated NASB, sadly, doesn't, the 95, the 77 does. 
So you can put in your Bibles, if you don't have one, confidently from the Greek, the word and. And the reason why is it changes the interpretation to what God intended because it is connected to what was previously said. And if you don't see the connection, you will misinterpret this passage. You see, we need to know, now the New King James says, moreover, that's, that's okay, that's not a bad translation. So then we have two conjunctions. It's not a new thought. And sadly, the evangelical church doesn't seem to recognize that this process here where you go and the process will see plus the Lord of heaven behind the process, sadly, the evangelical church doesn't see it connected to Jesus seeking his strange sheep. This is how he seeks them. This is how he does it. He does it through his body on earth, obeying his word, obeying his word. He says, and if your brother sins, it's a straying sheep, right? Uh, the reality is, is straying is sinning, right? Straying is sinning. We see that in, in um, he, Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity, that sin of us all, to fall on him. Straying sheep are sinning sheep. If your brother sins, he says here, now, the context here is a continuing sin. That's the tense. If your brother is continually, habitually sinning. Now, the New King James says against you, and that's, uh, that's a newer manuscript, and that's certainly true, but I think it goes even broader than that to this point here we see like an NESB, and if your brother sins. Again, it's not the myriad of sins that love covers, that don't, that don't, uh, that, that, that don't identify who you are. It's not Galatians 6, someone caught up in a trespass. Our passage is speaking of those who are continually habitually sinning and are unwilling to stop. They're not stopping. They are in rebellion. They're in rebellion. Either because they don't agree or they're openly rebelling, whatever it might be. And what are we to do if we love Jesus? What are we to do? And thus love his sheep. What are we to do? We need to obey the word of God. Remember, he said it's not the Father's will that any of these little ones be ruined or perish. And if your brother sins, and if your brother sins, he's straying from Jesus because of sin. What are we to do? Two imperative commands. Go, that's a command, and reprove, that's a command. Go and reprove. Go means what? Go, right? Go. It means you need to take action. Go and do what? Reprove. And he says here, in private. It's between you and the brother sinning privately. This is what Matthew 18 shares. You see, and don't attempt anything that we're reading here, along with anything else in the Christian life, apart from prayer, by the way. This isn't a mechanical formula that you that you hypocritically apply to sin you spot uh, through your big log, okay? It's not a mechanical system. It's in the context of prayer. We'll see later on if two or three are gathered in my name. That's talking about this situation. Anything they ask, it's going to answer. All of heaven is behind you. Be praying. There should be, you should be on your knees praying about the conversation that you are having to have in obedience to the Lord. Go and reprove him. Go and reprove him. Now, the term go means go. 
And we're going to see this is, first step is personal, it's private, and it's redemptive. Don't be telling people, I'm going to him to talk to him about this sin. He certainly has prayer. Prayer, hey, I've got a big thing I'm dealing with. Can you please pray for me? Whatever that might be. I need prayer. But folks, this is where gossip can, can come around the church. And if someone says to you, hey, I need to go talk to somebody about this, you know, if he's not asking for advice from an elder there, I would be saying, you know, hey, uh, hey, oh, don't tell me anything more. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Go to the Word of God, discern it rightly, and then go to your brother first. Go to your brother first. Because gossip is a heinous sin. The first step is to be in private. So what's to be done? Go and reprove. Two commands. Go. Go means go. Reprove means reprove. Eleko speaks of bringing to light. It's translated convict often and reprove. And let me warn you, brothers and sisters, you better be careful when you bring something before someone else in this process. You better be right. You better have facts. You better not be presumptive. This is a serious thing that all of heaven is behind you if you're right. And if you're wrong, all of heaven is not behind you at all. This is a serious thing. It is a legal case, in a sense, to win a brother in sin. You see, we do not want to presume anything. And it needs to be absolute, verifiable facts that your brother is in continual sin. Verifiable. We don't want to be anything like what do anything like what the Lord hates. He hates uh, uh, false witness, those who utter lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. He hates that. It's an abomination. So then, we're to never go unless if if they are vague generalities, presumption. Satan loves that. You destroy people. You destroy relationships. Don't ever do that. But if there is sin. If your brother sins, very simple. Go and reprove him in private. And how do you reprove? How do you expose? It is the word of God alone that exposes. The spirit of God convicts the world of sin. It exposes, same word. It's the word of God that exposes. Uh, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for, for teaching, for reproof. That's our word, for shedding light. So you take the word of God. And you say, look, God says, what God has joined, let no man separate. You're not to divorce. If you're a believer, that's absolutely sinful. You share the word of God. And you expose their sin to to win them. And you warn them. You reprove them. You reprove them. In private. Now, certainly, um, pastors reprove, right? We're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. The Word of God does that. The Word of God does that. But we need to realize it's the Spirit of God that brings to light sin through the Word of God. John chapter 16. And when he comes, he will convict, that's speaking of the, of the helper, the Spirit of God, Eleko, the world of sin. He'll expose it, bring to light. And scripture, all scripture brings to light. And so we bring the word of God, not our opinions, not our our thoughts. We bring the word of God, brother, I I love you, I care for you. Um, You're sinning. God's word says this, this is what you're doing. You need to repent and be restored. God loves you, but if you don't, there's going to be wreckage everywhere. You're going to suffer. It may even be an evidence that you don't know the Lord. Repent. Repent. So what happens? 
You do so for what reason? For approving him in private. And what's the goal? Back in our passage. If he listens to you. What's listening? We tell our kids, listen to me and take the trash out. We're saying, hear what I'm saying and do what I'm saying. The implication is, the person is listening. I hear you. It's sin. I'm, I confess it. I'm wrong. Right? He says, if, you, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. The term won here speaks of the idea of gaining by avoiding loss. You won. He has gained by avoiding the loss that would come through the sin that he was on the path of doing and would have continued to do. We go to the brother with the goal of winning, not with convicting. That's where the hypocrites come in. They go with the goal of convicting and pointing everything out. We go with the goal of sharing it so that they'll see their sin and confess it to the Lord Jesus. If we confess their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We want to win them. It's going to destroy you. Turn to Christ. Confess your sin. Confess your sin. And it's pretty simple. If he listens, you've won him. It's done. It's done. And it doesn't go anywhere else. It's in private. It doesn't go anywhere else. Now, we need to recognize that sometimes people might repent, but is it really repentance? Sometimes there's a worldly sorrow, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and, or 2 Corinthians 7 and 8, and there's a godly sorrow. There's going to be repentance. We'll see later on in Matthew chapter, uh, the end of the chapter 18, what true repentance is like and how, what we're to do with a brother who repents. We see that illustration. So then, sadly, the world has bought into a cowardly mindset that does not confront sin. And I hear things like this, well, God will convict them in his time. That's a very unloving statement. God says, go and reprove. And if you don't do that, are you obeying? Right? But the reason we don't do it is because we're either ignorant or we are fearful of the consequences of losing a relationship, usually what it is. If I tell them this, they're going to be mad at me. They're not going to, we're not going to, that's usually what it is. Obey the Lord. It's for their best interest. If you really love them, you do what the Lord says. You see, it's wonderful when someone hears the word of God, acknowledges their sin and turns from it and is restored in Christ. I've seen that happen and I've seen it not happen. It's wonderful. Heaven rejoices. Heaven rejoices. James uh, chapter 5. Let me share this. James 5. My brethren, uh, if anyone among you strays from the truth, verse 19, and one turns him back. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Let him know the one who turns a sinner from the air of his way shall save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Turn him. Share it by exposing. That's all God says. Expose it and uh, reprove in that context, and then hopefully they'll listen and you'll win them. Well, what do we do if that doesn't happen? There's another part of this. There's another part. You see, and we need to go at the heart of restoring a brother and sister, not exposing sin to be nitpicking, but we care for them, we love them. We see there's joy in... uh, he says, like earlier, when the, when the shepherd finds the sheep more, over the 99, he rejoices, right? There's joy. There's joy. And I was going to read to you uh, Luke 15, but uh, basically about the lost coin. Rejoicing, right? There's joy. But what do we do if they don't listen? They don't listen. And you know if they listen or not. You know it. 
you know exactly if there's, there's no wondering if they heard you or not. Listen. What do we do? Back in our passage. But if he does not listen to you. Very straightforward, very clear. There's no room for, for all the muck that we add into it. Take one or two more with you. So that would be two or three in total. And he says here, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every what? Fact. This is not hearsay. This is not assumption. It is not presumption. They are facts. They are facts. I give the illustration of divorce. You have filed for divorce. You are in sin. It is wrong. It is wrong. See, you get that illustration. That's a fact. Two or three witnesses. This is wrong. This is wrong. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is heaven addressing someone in sin. As we're going to see in a minute. It's very important. And we need to be obedient. This doesn't say give them time to figure it out. Give them time to work through the conversation that I just had. It says if they don't listen, bring one or two more. It's just straightforward. It's straightforward. That every fact would be confirmed. There are facts. You see, this comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So then, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, that every fact is confirmed. It's factual, and you're going to win them, not to, not to anger them, not to lose them. You're going to win them. We care about you so much. You are in sin. God's word says this. You're sitting. Repent and be restored. Confess your sin and be restored. And if they don't listen, what are we to do? Well, first of all, if they listen, they have gained by avoiding loss. You've won your brother. You've gained by avoiding loss. Well, what do we do? Well, there's a third step. Verse uh, 17, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's the body of Christ. Tell it to them. What are you telling them? The facts. You're obeying Matthew 18. For their, you care for them. You love them. It's for their good. You tell them the facts. And then the implication is that the church is going to come to them. The church now knows about it. They're going to, every time the church, anyone in the body goes there, they're going to say, every time, that every conversation, hey, uh, brother, you're in sin. We love you. You've got to confess that sin. You need to confess. Everybody in the church. The, the, anytime there's any contact with that person, hey, brother, hey, let's stop. I want to tell you one thing here right now. You're in sin. You need to confess it. We're telling you that right now so that you'd be restored to Jesus. There's no other conversations. That's the conversation. Tell it to the church. Now, it's interesting. You may have situations where you have, they're not in the body of Christ. This is assuming that they're in the body and they're sinning and they're not leaving, right? You may have situations like in families where people say they're believers. And what do you do in those situations? You follow the word of God. You go to them privately. You take two others that are believers in the family. You go to them. And then you've told it. There's no church to tell to unless you're telling it to their elders. If they're going to a church, I would go to them. I'd go to the elders of their church and say, hey, we're in this process. We're telling it to you so that you can follow through at this point. And then what do you do if they don't respond? What do you do if they don't respond? And the church, by the way, are, are believers. It's not a building. It's believers. He says, let him be to you. It's personal. As a Gentile or a tax gatherer. Whoa. In a Jewish context, that meant treat him 
like an unbeliever, a sinning unbeliever. You have nothing in common with him. In Christ, you cannot fellowship. Indeed, Paul reveals a similar situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's turn there. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we see this played forth. And we see some of the motives for why God does this. God wants them to be treated like non-believers at this point so that they would be put out into the world and at Satan's lack of mercy and at his hands that they would be broken down and repent. Because if you coddle them in their sin, they're not going to repent. I'll tell you that right now. God's way is always better than our way. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife and has become arrogant and has not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I and my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged. And we make judgments, by the way. Because you don't judge? Yes, we do judge. We judge in the relation for their good. He says, I've judged him who has committed this as though I was present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, that's the body of Christ, I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Obey God's word that they might be destroyed out in the world and that they might be saved rather than utterly destroyed. It's very... And he says here, he says, your boasting is not good. The boasting is, hey, we're, Corinthians like, hey, we're putting up this, we're, we're very flexible, we're, we're, we're working with them, whatever it might be, it's okay. Nope. He says, do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as fact you are unleavened. For Christ, is, Christ our Passover has also been sanctified. Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous swindlers or adulterers, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But I actually wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be... And a moral person, a covetous, idolater, a violer, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have with judging outsiders? Hey, we don't judge the world. Do you not judge those within the church? Yes, the implication is yes. But those that are outside, God judges. And then look at this. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Put him out. They are no longer to be in the body of Christ it doesn't mean you don't care for them, you love them, but they're, you treat them like a Gentile or tax gatherer that they might be saved because maybe they're not. Maybe they're not, and God wants them to be so, obviously. So then, obviously, how would this apply in a family? A lot of different issues. You don't treat them as a believer anymore. You don't fellowship with them. You avoid them in a sense. You're kind, you're gracious, but they're as a non-believer to you, a Gentile and a tax gatherer. There's nothing in common in Christ. Your conversation sh- should be, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need to confess your sin. That should be your conversation. I care for you. You can't have the fellowship you had before. It's not there. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And now... We have this next portion, which sadly the evangelical church has ripped out of its context 
and it's used so often in, in ignorance. And now when you learn what it really is, don't be prideful and correct people in an evil way, but you'll see what I'm talking about. He says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the Charismatics use that to bind and loose demons. There's no such thing as that, by the way. Michael the archangel did not even dare pronounce a railing judgment. Don't even go near that, okay? That's not what this is talking about. He said, again, I say to you, if two, agree, if you, if two of you agree about anything on earth, about anything that you ask, it will be done it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. It's church discipline. That's not a prayer meeting. It's not a prayer meeting. You see, we have the Spirit of God. He's in our midst all the time. But God is in our midst in a sense that he agrees with everything you are doing. He is there seeking the lost sheep through you. When two or three are gathered in his name, that's what he's talking about. When he talks about binding and loosing, this is legal language. It's an authoritative legal term. Uh, the rabbis would say in the law that you were bound or forbidden to do this, or you were loosed or permitted to do this. We understand this language. A contract is binding, right? We understand that. So he's saying what you do in a sense legally on earth. Now the tenses are very important here. He, he says here, the phrase shall be bound. It's in a perfect tense. He's actually saying it's very important. Whatever you do on earth has already been done in heaven. It's a perfect tense. It's done and it still applies right now. It's not shall be done. It is perfect tense. Already been done. What you are doing on earth, heaven has already declared it. And you are following through as Christ's body on earth to seek the straying sheep. And all heaven is behind you. The Lord is with you in your obedience. And we need to know that. If you've ever gone through this process, you realize you need to know the Lord's with you. Because it is probably the most difficult thing you will do in the Christian life, going to someone to this level to address sin. So then, he says again, I say, if two or you agree on earth about anything... They may ask, it will be done for you by my Father who is heaven. You are in agreement in addressing sin and obeying the word of God. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. It's an encouragement. And it, it implies prayer. It implies prayer. You and the two or three other people are praying. You're coming to the Lord about it. Lord, we're going to go talk to so-and-so. Please, we pray for their heart to respond. We pray they would respond and repent. You're praying about it and you're going, Lord, help us to obey you for their good and for your glory. You see, that's what it's about. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you see his sheep as more valuable to him than to you for the immediate moment, you're going to obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. It's going to be in the context of spirit-led submission to the word of God and the God of the word sharing his word so that they might respond, be one, be one. That's the goal. So then, the process is very clear, and hopefully we understand it. My question would be, do you love his sheep? Are you obedient to the commands? Is there anyone who is a believer in your sphere, in the church, who is continually habitually in sin? It's not those other examples. Often it's immorality. Usually that's a lot of what it is. Continual habitual sin, God's word shares what we're to do for their good, that they would gain rather than lose. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, help us to be discerning and to make judgments and to apply your word rightly for uh, our walk with you and for those around us. I pray we would not be hypocritical in what we have heard today and be pointing our fingers at people and whatever it might be, but that we would walk with you and as you allow us to see the things that happen within the body of Christ, I pray we would obey you, that we would apply your word rightly, whether it's letting your love in us cover a multitude of sins, whether it's uh, going uh, and restoring a brother, whether it's turning away from those who are dangerous, or whether it's going to someone who's in sin. Lord, I pray we will be obedient because your heart is to restore them. May we never try to restore them through our own wisdom and through our own ways. May we trust you and obey you so that you'd be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.